Let's pray together. God, we come to you humbly this morning asking that you help our small minds grasp how big you are. God, as we, as we talk about who you are, God, we pray for understanding that you will reveal to us the fullness of your glory. God, we thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen. Well, today we are going to launch into a a 12-week study titled The Core. And this is where we're going to be looking at the essentials of our faith, the, the, the core beliefs of what we have as Christians. And I know for some of you, you hear that and you have already checked out because you have been studying the Word of God for decades And you could teach this a lot better than I can. But I want to challenge you to to put the brakes on that and be open to what God has for you over these next 12 weeks. Because I think as we study the core in the same way that we've gone back and studied the fundamentals of things like prayer or gone back and studied the, the story of Scripture from beginning to end, it's important for us to remind ourselves of the basics. And if you have been around for a while, it's easy to forget the basics. How many of you have some sort of routine thing that you do, and if you go back and try to teach somebody else what it is and how to do it, suddenly you really have to think hard? Like tying a shoe, like I instinctively tie a shoe, but now I need to teach somebody how to tie a shoe, and it's like, okay, there's these two strings. What's, what's the little rhyme again? I don't remember. And so it's like, I know how to tie a shoe, but, but do I really remember what it means to tie a shoe? And so I think the core beliefs are one of those kinds of things. If you are familiar with it, it can become over-familiar, and we need to readdress it. There are a couple reasons why I think it's really important for us, especially now, to think about these core beliefs. The first is our core beliefs are under attack. We are under attack, and if we don't have a real firm understanding of what it is that we really believe, then we are standing on shifting soil. And so we have to know very clearly what it is that we believe because the culture is not going to overtly, sometimes it does, but it doesn't always overtly attack our beliefs. There are subtle things that begin to intertwine into what we believe about things like God and salvation and heaven. And suddenly the cultural norms become more our reality than the scriptural norms. And so it's important for us to return back to it. Also, as as Christians, we should be radically different from the world around us. But if you look at statistics, our marriages, our lifestyles, our use of the internet are not much different from the world around us. And we should be radically changed. Our lives should be marked by love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control. And too many of our lives don't look that much different from our neighbors. And I'm going to argue that, that that is because there is something in your fundamental belief system that is not connecting with your behavior. That what you really believe in your heart is different than what you say you believe. 
So as a church, we are called to make disciples. We're called to, to be like Jesus. As, as disciples, we aren't trying to get more church attenders. We're not trying to fill the pews. We're trying to help people encounter God in such a way that they are compelled to dedicate their lives to following Jesus. We don't need more people in the pews for the sake of people in the pews. We need people who have been transformed by the word of God. And so disciples are followers who are learning from the one that they're following, and they're learning for the sake of becoming like that person. So the goal of the Christian life is not more knowledge. It is not knowing the most. It is not showing up to the most church events. It, it, it is not about giving the most money or doing the most good, the goal of the Christian life is to become like Jesus. And so do we want to become like Jesus? If we are working at becoming like Jesus, then everything else falls in place. Things like church attendance and classes and small groups and spiritual disciplines, these are all means to an end. They're not the end in and of themselves. You sitting here today is not the goal. This is something that you use as an opportunity to become like Jesus. Paul says in, in Romans chapter 8, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And then the letter to the Corinthians, he writes, And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. And so, as followers of Jesus, we are being called to be conformed into the image of Jesus. We should be looking more like Jesus. The things that we're doing in pursuit of God should help us to look more like Jesus. In the same way a sculptor chips away all the things that don't look like the thing that he's sculpting, God is trying to chip away from us all the things that don't look like Jesus. And so the things that we have built up around us, he wants to take a hammer to. And he wants to beat it out of us. And says, I want you to look like my son. I want you to look like Jesus. And so if we're going to be like Jesus, it's going to take some effort on our part. I'm going to have a diagram up here that kind of gives us an idea of, of what we're trying to accomplish through the next 12 weeks and, and really going to be working on throughout the course of this year in some other series as well. And we're, we're using the resource Think, Act, Believe Like Jesus by Randy Frazee. Um, it's kind of helping inform a little bit of our, our ideas around this, but we're really going in and looking at who the core, what the core is that we believe. And he gives us this model here that says, be like Jesus. If you want to be like Jesus, you have to have the goal of being like Jesus. Like, we have to make the decision that that's what we want to do first, right? I can say I want to lose 10 pounds, but I also really like chocolate chip cookies, and so I have to pick between one of those two as to which one is more important in my life. And chocolate chip cookies are more important. So I'm going to eat the chocolate chip cookie. And so I can say I want a certain thing, but I behave a different way because I haven't really set the goal. I've typed it into an app somewhere, and it's tracking it, but it's not changing. So, you know, it, 
the goal is chocolate chip cookies. Amen. <laughs> and so we can say that we want to run a marathon, but I don't like the cold, and I don't like the heat, and I don't like the rain. So when are you going to run? And so... Like, which one is your goal? And so if I say I want to be like Jesus, am I really working to be like Jesus? Is, like, is that really a goal in my life? Because we can look at each other's bank accounts, and we can look at each other's calendars and say what your real goal is. Cookies are a little more fun to talk about, right? But like, really, what is your goal? Is, is, is our goal to be like Jesus, or, or is our goal really, if we were to look at our bank accounts and look at our schedules, is our goal really being rich, or is it being famous, or is it, is it being powerful, or is it being successful, or is it being liked by others, or is it being fit and beautiful, or is it about being right all the time, or is it about being politically conservative, or is it about being politically liberal, is it about being safe? Patrick gave us a, a great lesson last week about what the call to follow Jesus really means, and it's not a call to safety. And so, do you want to be like Jesus more than all of those things? So we have to have the goal of being like Jesus, but to be like Jesus, we don't just do that in our own effort. We have to think like Jesus. We have to think like him. We have to believe the things that Jesus believes. Philippians chapter 2 introduces this, this great and familiar passage about who Jesus is, and it introduces it this way. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So we have to have the same mindset as Jesus. If we want to be like him, we have to think like him, and that means we have to believe like him. Having the same mindset is, means having the same core beliefs that Jesus has, the core beliefs of the Christian faith. And, and it's so essential for us to understand what those are if we're expecting to have transformed lives to become like Jesus. Understanding what we think will help us understand who we're becoming because the way I think changes the way I behave. And to be a certain way, I have to think a certain way. And we're not just talking about some intellectual thing. We're not talk, talking about the pursuit of knowledge. Belief is more than just intellect. Belief is something that has to get down into the heart. I know for me, often my head is far above and or far beyond where my heart is. My head can know cognitively what it means to love my enemy, but my heart is having a hard time following that thought. And so much of the Christian faith is that way, right? Where we can understand intellectually what it means that there is a God, the one true God, but in my life, the way I behave, the way my heart operates is very different. Matt Chandler says it this way, intellectual assent does not create transformed hearts. I can agree to something intellectually, but that does not mean my heart has been transformed. To have a transformed heart, we really have to get into what our core beliefs are. What do we really believe about God? Do I really realize that I'm not God? 
What do I really believe about who God is? And then the third component is act. We have to act like Jesus. We need some tools to help us do this, some practices that are in our lives to help us to believe and be like Jesus. And and these are where the spiritual disciplines become so helpful because they're tools for us to act like Jesus. And if we act like Jesus, then we will start thinking like Jesus. And if we start thinking like Jesus, we'll start being like Jesus. And so we're going to talk about that later uh, in the year. Um, Bruce and Jim are teaching a class on Sunday morning on the spiritual disciplines. Great opportunity to get in and say, what are the tools that I need to act like Jesus? And so looking at this being and thinking and acting like Jesus is, is incredibly overwhelming. But Second Peter gives us this encouragement. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. So we don't do this by our own willpower. We don't do it in our own efforts. We have God empowering all of it. God gives us the power to do what he's called us to do. And so this this next slide shows how God is impacting and empowering the being and the thinking and the acting like Jesus. And so we rely on that power, not on our own power. And so the question for us is, do you want to be like Jesus? Is that really your goal? And so I'm going to assume, for the sake of continuing the sermon series, that the answer to that is yes. But many of us really need to spend some time evaluating whether or not that is really the answer to that question. Do we really want to be like Jesus? Or do we like the chocolate chip cookie better? So, our first thing, the core belief that we're going to talk about is God. We've got to start with God. Who is God? Who is he? Because if we don't really understand who God is, then we don't really know who it is that we follow. And we don't really know who it is that is empowering us to be, act, and think like Jesus. So we have to understand who God is. And so we're going to talk about everything that God is in the next two weeks. You know, so everything about God in the next two weeks. So obviously, this is going to be a high-level survey. In the same way that we went through the story Genesis through Revelation in 31 weeks, we had to fly through some things. We are giving some overview as a reminder. And you need to spend some time on your own digging into the Scriptures and understanding what it is that you really believe about God. And so we're going to introduce some of these topics. The concept of God is hard for us to really wrap our minds around, right? He is incomprehensible, yet he's knowable. You know, he, we, we don't understand him, but we know him. He is omnipresent, which means he's everywhere, but we have a personal relationship with him. You know, there, there are all of these opposing viewpoints of who God is, and, and just getting our head around that is just like mind-blown, right? Like, who is this God? A.W. Tozer says that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So your answer to this question, who is God, is the most important thing about you. 
And I don't think we have spent the time answering this question in the same way that we have invested in our education, in the same way we've invested in our careers, in all the sports activities, and all the things that we get involved in. We know a lot more football trivia than we do about the answer to the question of who is God. And this is the most important thing about us. Now notice we are not starting with the question, does God exist? We've just skipped over that question. We're assuming that God exists. The Bible assumes that God exists, as well as the majority of Americans. Only 2.4% of Americans don't believe that there's a God. And so this idea that the world just does not believe in the existence of God really is not all that true. But what is true is the question of who is that God? Which God is it that you follow? Paul, in Romans chapter 1, summarizes it really well when he says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And so all of creation tells us that there is a God. It gives us a testimony that there is a God. God exists. And, and Paul even acknowledges here that, that people see and acknowledge that there is a God, as, as do most Americans. But how they have interpreted that is different. They have chosen to glorify something else instead of the one true God. We read in Psalm 19 during, during the welcome this idea that all of creation gives testimony and cries out that there is a God. And so like Paul, like the psalmist, one of the greatest evidences for God is creation itself. And so I've got a video I am hoping we'll show because we've been having some technical difficulties with videos, but we're going to show a video. We've shown it before, but this video gives such an incredible, just incredible picture to what it means to have and follow God the Creator. And so I think we're good to go. Awesome. Let's just dim the lights.
Gazing at a bird in flight Soaring through the air Lying down beneath the stars I feel your presence there I love to stand at ocean shore And feel the
So we can look at that and we can say, do you believe that there is a God? Because to look at that and say that there is no God is probably just as much a leap of faith as it is to say that there is. To look at the creativity, to look at the intentionality, to look at how everything is interconnected, to say that that was some sort of accidental thing uh, is, is really quite out there. And so we don't have time to go through a bunch of scientific proofs of, of why or, or how God exists. And so I'd encourage you to go study that. I'd encourage you to read something like uh, The Reason for God by Timothy Keller that, that dives into this at a level that I can't even comprehend. And so you can, you can dig into this in, in pretty significant ways. But, but what you will look at is that all of, of creation can point to the fact that there is a God. Uh, the, the Bible does not work to prove or defend the existence of God. You see in the, very first wor- in the very first phrase of the Bible, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. God was there. He, he, he was already there before the heavens and the earth. Before we saw any of this, God was there. Wayne Grudem says it this way, when we believe that God exists, we're basing our belief not only on blind hope, apart from any evidence, but on an overwhelming amount of reliable evidence from God's words, which is everything in Scripture, and God's works, everything in nature. So we we see God's words and we see God's works both giving us credible evidence that there is a God. And so God reveals himself in nature, and anybody can see that, but we need Scripture to be able to interpret what it is that we're seeing. There are hundreds of false religions, even thousands of false religions, that use nature as evidence, but their interpretation of that is wrong. Their interpretation of that does not come from the guidance of the Word of God. And so they misunderstand it and they distort it. God reveals Himself and then He provides for us evidence. But the evidence that God provides for us is is not something that's scientific. It's not something that's intellectual. The evidence that God gives us in His Word is something very different. We can't go to the Bible and find a bunch of scientific proofs for the existence of God. You will spin your wills if you try doing that. What you will find is God offering an experiential encounter with him. What God offers us in in the story of Scripture is we see God proving himself through his promises kept and through the power that he unleashes. God of the Bible keeps his promises. God of the Bible unleashes his power. Take, for instance, the story of Joshua during his farewell address. He is speaking to the people and addressing them and and giving them his final words of, of following God. And he goes through this final address in Joshua chapter 23 and 24 and and gives them this, this reminder of the story of Israel. Remember where you were at. Remember when you were in Egypt and you were slaves. And God fulfilled his promise and unleashed his power in that context. He unleashed his power on Pharaoh and the Egyptians and said, I'm keeping my promise, 
and I'm delivering you from Egypt. And so he presents this story to the people of God, and then he, he reminds them that based on this evidence, based on God keeping his promises, and based on God unleashing his power, he reminds them of this. He says, now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. This is the one true God. He's proved himself by keeping promises and unleashing his power. And so fear this Lord. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you were living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And so God has given the evidence of who he is to these people. And now they're faced with a decision. Do you believe that this is the one true God? If, if he is, then you need to throw away all the things that are distracting you, all the things that are getting in the way, all the things that you're worshiping more than him. Get rid of those things and choose to follow the Lord. He's the one true God. And Joshua boldly says at the end of his life, me in my house, we're going to serve the Lord. We'll fast forward 500 years, and the people did not follow Joshua's advice. He said to throw away the gods of the land, and they did not throw away the gods of the land. And In fact, they began to intermingle with them and intermarry with them, and, and things became eroded, and things changed, and all the other gods became more desirable than the one true God. The worship of Baal had intermingled with their own practices, but God had kept his promise. In 1 Kings 18, Elijah comes on the scene and, and he calls the prophets of Baal in this incredible story, this incredible scene here, where he calls the prophets of Baal to, to pray to their God that their God would come down and burn up this sacrifice that was on the altar. And these, these, poor prof, or these prophets of Baal, man, they are not having a good day. They are praying, and they're praying, and they're praying, and, and Elijah is taunting them, right? It's like, pray louder. Maybe he's like on vacation or taking a nap or something. Pray louder so your God will hear you, and, and nothing ever happens. And then Elijah has, every, has them bring in all this water. They soak the altar with water, and he prays to God, and fire comes down from heaven and consumes every bit of it. God's power is unleashed. And this is how they responded. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. This is the one true God. This is the one that we follow. This is the one that we have read about. The one that has fulfilled His promises. The one that has unleashed His power. This is the true God revealed. And so creation proves that there is a God the Bible, or the God of the Bible, proves that He is the one true God because a promise is kept and unleashing His power.
This is summarized well in Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. So God the creator, the one who reveals himself in creation, this is the one true God. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of you as some of your own poets would say, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design or skill. We're God's offspring. So we should not think that, that God can be found in things that we create. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. He calls us to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof, proof of this to everyone by raising Jesus from the dead. God's promises are kept and his power is unleashed. And so now here is this incredible thing. God of the Bible is the one true God. This is who we serve. This is who we follow. And God proves to us that he is your God. He is your God. When he kept his promise to you by providing a way back to him through Jesus Christ. He kept his promise to you. And we also see that, that God proved that he is your God when he unleashed his power to bring Jesus back from the dead. And so we look at the evidence. The God of the Bible. Is he the one true God? Who is he? And so this is a question that we each have to answer for ourselves. Is the God of the Bible the one true God? And so here is our first core belief of the series. Let's read this out loud together. I believe the God of the Bible is the only true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so may that be true for you in your heart, not just in your head. We're going to spend some time next week talking about what that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit means. And we're going to divide this up into two parts. But for today, what do you believe about who God is? Is the God of the Bible the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Let's be standing together. 
many, if not most of us, have confessed that God is the one true God. We've, we've confessed that through baptism, and we have attempted to live lives that are true to that confession. We all fall short of that and make mistakes in that. There are ways in which we want to be God instead. I would much rather be God, because then I can do it my way. And so that's why this belief is so important. Like, in your heart, do you really believe that he is God? Or do you believe that you're God? Because too often the way we behave is more like we believe that we're God. And so we're going to spend some time in prayer. This is an opportunity for you to, to pray with one of the shepherds. It's an opportunity for you to move around and pray with one another. You can gather up in groups, or, or you can pray as a, as a family, or you can, you can come forward and pray with one of the shepherds. It's an opportunity for us to pray that God would chip away the things that don't look like Jesus. That our hearts will be transformed by the beliefs that we have in our head. And so what are the things that are getting in the way of that belief of God being the one true God? What's getting in the way of that getting into your heart? Let's pray that together now. God, we thank you for this opportunity to just talk about you and reflect on you. God, we want to believe in the very core of our hearts, the very core of our being, that you are the one true God. And so for all the things that get in the way of that, the things that crowd that out, the th things that distract us from that, God, I pray that you will, will tear those things away, that as we are deconstructed of those things, we will be built back up and, and reconstructed into the image of your Son. God, we love you, and we declare that you are the one true God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's pray together as we uh, sing.